The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co. Inc., Pfizer Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to another one of our Office of Education podcasts, with this specific podcast being part of our AUA Expert Exchange podcast series, Discussions in Generative Urinary Cancers. Today's specific episode is titled The Appropriate Use of Biomarker and Genetic Testing in the Diagnosis and Management of Patients with Prostate Cancer. And it's really my pleasure to host uh, two great thought leaders uh, in this space, and, and we get an opportunity to sort of pick their brain and hear their thoughts on things for the next uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to introduce Dr. Veda Geary. Dr. Geary is the Chief of Clinical Cancer Genetics at the Yale School of Medicine and Assistant Director of Clinical Cancer Genetics at Yale Cancer Center. And I'd like to also introduce Dr. Todd Morgan, who's the Jack Lapides Research Professor and Chief of Urologic Oncology at the University of Michigan. Uh, so first of all, Veda, Todd, thank you so much uh, again for your time and, and for taking uh, uh, this opportunity to do this podcast with us. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Great. This is this, this will be fun. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So maybe um, we'll, let's start off perhaps at sort of the twenty thousand foot view, and then obviously we'll we'll go a little bit deeper as we talk more about you know cancer genetics and and biomarkers. But and maybe I'll just turn it over to both of you. Maybe talk to us a little bit just. Uh, in this whole concept of prostate cancer, prostate cancer early detection, um, what are some of the the key sort of points from there? And then maybe we'll we'll then pivot a little bit, starting to talk a little bit about perhaps you know higher risk groups and stuff like that. But maybe just talk to us a little bit about you know where have we evolved beyond simply looking at PSA uh, alone? Sure. I mean, I can start since since we live this as urologists. Um, you know, look. I, I mean. Reams have been written about this, and at the end of the day, I, th I think they're just a, maybe a, just a couple of key concepts that it really boils down to. One, we overdetect a lot of prostate cancer, right? We know that, and two, we overtreat a lot of prostate cancer, and we 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 know that. And so, um, figuring out how to optimize early detection in such a way that we avoid those downstream effects is really critical. And we, you know, we actually have, have the ability to do that. The the kind of mid 2000s approach of um, mid to or mid 2010s approach of like let's or let's just stop PSA screening altogether. That's bad, right? So so let's not do that. Um, and and let's instead you use any of the myriad tools we have available to us to do early detection better. And then ultimately knowing that downstream, we can also impact how much we overtreat 
patients who are potentially over over detected with that low risk prostate cancer. So I guess that'll be my initial two cents on this. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe one related question for for you, Todd, or maybe for you, Veda, but certainly for Todd, because as you said, we we sort of see so much of this elevated PSA, and that that's really bread and butter. It, it doesn't matter if you're an oncologist or if you're a endourologist or general urologist, you know, elevated PSA is sort of a crux of what we see in practice. So maybe talk a little bit about, um, do you in your clinical practice, even before you look at other tools beyond PSA, do you use anything like uh, risk calculators or models that that help you, or, or do you look at any particular components of PSA that you find in clinical practice help you sort of you know, refine some of your decision-making process on other other screening tools and modalities. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we like PSA is helpful, but if we use PSA in isolation, we're missing opportunities to, to, to assess patients at a much higher level. And so in Michigan, we used, I think most of us here use the music calculator. And, and so that's a calculator based on Michigan-specific data. It turns out it's m- way better calibrated for our population than say the PCPT calculator, but the PCPT cal- calculator is great. And just, you know, using say a PSA threshold of four as like a blunt instrument, mm-hmm. that's, that's not that useful. It's, it's something, but it's not as good as we can be doing. And so um, I would absolutely start with a risk calculator. We have to then kind of understand the, the data that we get from that, that we're not just using like this number of say four and pretending it's a yes, no, but we're getting an assessment of the likelihood of Gleason 6 cancer, the likelihood of Gleason 7 or greater cancer. Um, and we have to be able to, we have to have some comfort level of presenting that information to patients. And then there's, you know, there's easy things to, to use like, um, you know, PSA density based on a digital rectal exam. Okay, well, that's maybe pretty helpful, but um, not as good as PSA density on an MRI. And free PSA is really, really helpful. And if you look at some of those, um, you know, multi, um, multi-panel biomarker blood tests, free PSA is like right, right there as part of it. So, so those are a couple easy, cheap things to use. And then, you know, we can talk more about MRI and other biomarkers that are available beyond that. Yeah. So I, I think um, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sort of pick up on what you just mentioned there and ask you about that. And then, and then I'd like to pivot a little bit and sort of talk about sort of some of the higher risk groups and maybe turn it over to Beta a little bit on her thoughts. But so the last question for you, Todd, in this whole screening realm is obviously we have more and more tools available. We have imaging tools such as MRI. We, as you alluded to, we have blood and urine biomarkers. And and as you look at it, the, the list is frankly increasing and at some point can become endless. And when you think about cost of care, you can order all of these things on persons and and it's a lot of money at the end of the day. So how do you sort of balance and, and maybe just personal preference on um, balancing the use of imaging tools versus versus urinary and blood biomarkers to complement uh, PSA. Yeah, well, I, I think I think both. So, you know, I think both approaches have a lot of validity. Meaning, an image-based approach or a biomarker-based approach. There, there are models though that also suggest that you can pair them in a way that's that makes economic sense. Um, because you know you would use the biomarker to, to then make a decision, for example, about who needs an MRI, and you decrease the number of MRIs that way. Um, in my practice, I tend to rely on MRI. MRI's got level one data; it works really well. Um, patients understand it, um, right? They, we get that like we we see something or we don't, and then there's the advantage of being able to 
target a lesion with MRI. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I don't use any blood or urine biomarkers. We, we do in, um, you know, I'd say more select instances, where, especially patients with um, persistent elevated PSA over time, we've had a negative biopsy, or maybe we've had a negative MRI. And it's those populations can be really informative, or maybe a patient with a pyrads 3 lesion that we're making a decision to biopsy or not. That's another setting. Um, so, so, you know, they're both, both approaches are in NCCN guidelines. They're, um, so they're, again, both really valid approaches, um, important ways to avoid, you know, a, a, every patient with an elevated PSA undergoing a biopsy and, and because we can do better than that. And, and maybe finally for, for either of you, um, maybe just highlight for our listeners who, the high-risk groups, who are these high-risk groups and, um, and how do you define them? And, and lastly, how does that sort of impact on your practice? How does that impact maybe on your, your, your practice of screening and or uh, interval of screening these patient populations? Yeah, I think um, risk um, information is really critical in terms of trying to define strategies to personalize the screening approach for prostate cancer for all of the reasons that um, you know Dr. Morgan alluded to uh, already in terms of the need to have this be tailored to patients. And so some of the criteria for high risk um, that define high risk individuals would be those that um, have a family history of prostate cancer, but not only prostate cancer, you know, it's clear now that cancers can be connected in families. And so even a family history of breast cancer can be important in terms of raising the risk for prostate cancer. So um, thinking about cancer family history would be very important. Um, uh, men of African descent uh, can have higher risk of prostate cancer as well. And so that's why that's part of the um, ancestry criteria in the NCCN for thinking about more tailored um, or earlier uh, PSA screening in those individuals. And then certainly what's really exploded in the last, you know, recent years or, you know, half a decade now, especially has been um, the germline genetic variants that have been identified. So inherited risk variants in cancer risk genes, for example, in BRCA2 or BRCA1 um, can raise the risk of prostate cancer in a male and um, uh, has been incorporated into NCCN for prostate cancer screening uh, for a few years now in terms of thinking of earlier prostate cancer screening, particularly for men that carry BRCA2 mutations starting at 40. Um, that's been expanded recently in the early detection panel in the prostate cancer early detection guideline where there was some consideration now given even to those individuals that carry DNA mismatch repair gene mutations um, or mutations in HOXB13 to consider earlier prostate cancer screening. So that's a more recent uh, addition to the NCCN guidelines. You know, we get a lot of questions about um, SNPs, the more common variants uh, that can be scattered throughout the genome and combining them into um, a risk score to see if there's a way to help decipher the risk of an individual either on the higher end or potentially on the lower end of risk uh, to think about screening. And I think those are going to be very valuable in terms of adding to potentially germline variants and family history um, as those paradigms get more um, flushed out and um, the clinical utility is a little more um, determined. Um, but I think those are definitely on the horizon as well. So it's lots of different factors to think about how do we categorize risk for an individual in front of us and strategize their prostate cancer screening. So Veda, one, one question I'm going to follow up with you is, um, 
Maybe you talked a little bit about germline mutations and maybe just explain to the, the readers or listeners, sorry, uh, germline versus somatic mutations. Like, What is the difference between them? And when, when you're talking about germline mutations, and obviously you mentioned a few of the different genes, what are we're kind of now pivoting towards sort of this whole concept now of the germline testing portion of our podcast. But what is it? How is it different than somatic? And, and what are some of the specific genes that we look at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question uh, because not all genetic testing is the same. So germline genetic testing is actually for inherited genetic changes. So these are genetic changes that are passed along in our genes from mother and father. And, you know, it's 50% of our DNA comes from mom, 50% comes from father. And so these are the genes that are inherited through our germline that are passed along and can raise the risk of cancer in an individual's lifetime. So these are stable genetic changes or genetic mutations that we can test for. Um, They were there at birth and they don't change over a person's lifetime. Um, Versus somatic or tumor related um, testing, which is actually looking at genetic changes that are in tumors that have been typically acquired over a person's lifetime. So these are changes that occurred within the tissues that either spurred the biological process for cancer development um, and can now be targetable as well from a therapeutic standpoint. So thinking about why uh, doctors or oncologists might be ordering tumor testing, it's really to look to see are there targeted genetic mutations that can open the door for options for treatment for men with particularly more metastatic, castration-resistant, advanced prostate cancer. Um, that's, the, that's also true for the germline mutations. And particularly if they go together, there is a huge impact potentially on treatment outcomes. But that's the key difference is the germline is inherited. The tumor testing or somatic testing is at the tissue level. So, so Todd, this is one area where, where I don't feel like in general, and I, I'm generalizing here, but I don't feel like urologists and urologic practitioners do as good a job as we should in appropriately identifying who, which prostate cancer patients would benefit from genetic testing, right? I, I think it's yeah. underutilized. You probably know the data much better than I do, but I suspect it's, it's underutilized. So maybe just educate our listeners who should be getting Genetic testing. What are some of the criteria? Either the NCCN or I know Veda. Obviously, you've done a lot of work in the in the in the Philadelphia Consensus Conference. So maybe for both of you, what what are the criteria for get obtaining genetic testing in this patient population? Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Jay. It's um, this is we just you know you hosting this podcast goes a long way towards getting the word out. It's an area that you know we know it's important, and um, urologists and radiation oncologists and medical oncologists are all on the front lines. And if we don't bring this up with patients, then it's not going to happen. And um, and so we need to. And, um, the criteria are you know vary from different guidelines. They're, just like you said, there's NCCN and there's the Philadelphia Consensus Conference that Dr. Geary led. Um, you know, I think that it's like the high level gestalt is really the most important thing. So, you know, you can put the guidelines up in your office and take a look at them. But, you know, it, there are some really simple concepts. One, patients with metastatic prostate cancer. They, it's really important that we bring this up with, the, with those patients. They should be recommended to undergo germline testing. Two, patients with high risk localized prostate cancer. That's really important. And then you kind of, that brings in potentially cribiform and introductal histology. So those are, you know, some nuances that like they, that triggers the thought, okay, that patient probably needs germline testing. And then just like Dr. Gary mentioned, it's, it, the, these other cancers, not just prostate, but a family history of breast, ovarian, pancreatic, colon cancer. And the guidelines get pretty detailed 
about, okay, you know, say breast cancer, you know, mom with breast cancer diagnosed age, you know, under 50, um, dad with metastatic prostate cancer. And I think it's good to, you know, it's good to read the guidelines. Um, again, you can look, we can look at the prostate cancer NCCN guidelines. There's also the NCCN has the familial risk assessment guidelines. I don't even mention prostate cancer in the name, but do speak to prostate cancer. But I, I really think from a pragmatic standpoint for urologists, it's like, do we, you know, we take that the family history that encompasses these other cancers. And we recognize that when there is a family history of these other cancers and my patient has prostate cancer, and even like, you know, say intermediate risk prostate cancer, even low risk prostate cancer with a strong family history of these other cancers, we want to have these conversations. And then beyond that, you know, um, Ashkenazi Jewish, Jewish ancestry is in the guidelines um, because, you know, because that's a population where we, we see addition, you know, higher rate of germline mutation. So uh, I'd say th those, are the, those are the main things. Did I miss anything, Veda? No, no, I, that was excellent. I mean, I, I, that's exactly what it is. It's like those high-level criteria where between the two guidelines, they're aligned. So between the NCCN prostate cancer guideline and the other, the NCCN, it's the breast ovarian and pancreatic guideline. So it doesn't mention prostate, but it has guidelines for germline testing of prostate cancer in there. So I would recommend that clinicians keep an eye on both of those guidelines for updates. Um, that's where they're aligned is for what Dr. Morgan talked about. And the family history criteria are different between the two guidelines. So of course the breast ovarian and pancreatic guidelines, their family history criteria are more tailored to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. And that's why they focus on like early onset breast cancer or of course pancreatic ovarian. The prostate guideline is more inclusive. So it, it's more, uh, general to include cancers, not only for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, but for Lynch syndrome as well. So that, that's where you get the colon cancer and um, uterine cancer and pancreatic cancer, et cetera. Um, and even more hereditary prostate cancer features too. So generational prostate cancer, young onset prostate cancer, et cetera. So um, those are the two places that, that you can go to for thinking about it. But even if clinicians think just testing men that have metastatic prostate cancer or high risk disease, that's a, that's a major proportion of the patients that should get testing. Okay, so we have someone in the office, we've identified that they have metastatic prostate cancer. So um, what, are, what are sort of the, just the logistics elements of it? What I, what I mean by that is, you know, how, how, are, how is this done? Uh, how is testing done? Um, and what do you test for? I mean, are there particular panels? Um, are those more tailored to individual institutions? Um, so what are some of the nuts and bolts once you've identified someone who's appropriate for testing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, from the testing aspect itself, it can actually be done on a blood sample or a saliva sample or like a cheek swab, bubble swab um, sample. So the testing itself is actually pretty simple. It comes down to thinking about what are the genes that we want to test for, and then how do we appropriately discuss the genetic testing with patients before testing is done. So in terms of whether that's with a genetic counselor who can go over that information with patients or with the doctor in the office to discuss this information with patients. So um, some of that information that goes into those discussions includes you know, what is the family history for the patient? So in addition to the uh, patient having metastatic prostate cancer, was there a family history of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, of course. Um, it's really important for males to also consider females in their families because oftentimes males might just think of the male relatives with, with cancers. And 
females can just think of females. So we always want to make sure we cover uh, all of the blood relatives in the family when we think about family history. And that helps to tailor the testing approach as well. So, you know, we would want to talk about the value of family history to help guide us in what genes to test. So another aspect of that pretest discussion would be what are the genes that we're interested in testing? For sure, we would want to test BRCA1 and 2, very important genes in prostate cancer. Um, prostate cancer is linked with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome that those two genes are implicated in and also can be important in therapeutic uh, decisions for, for those patients. Um, the Lynch syndrome genes, so they're the DNA mismatch repair genes, so MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, PMS2, um, EPCAM, although the data for EPCAM is a little bit lower, but uh, those are important genes to test for as well in men with prostate cancer. Um, again, because if we could uncover Lynch syndrome in those families, and that would have major implications for cancer screening for those men and their family members uh, upon testing. Uh, POXB13, hereditary prostate cancer gene, important to test for as well in thinking about the hereditary aspect of prostate cancer. Um, other DNA repair genes also um, would be potentially important to think about testing, for example, PALB2, uh, BRIP1, um, and then check two. These are other genes that are in, that are cancer risk genes that um, are they, that men with prostate cancer can have mutations in, and certainly they can impact hereditary risk in those individuals and their families. We can so a typical prostate cancer panel for these germline mutations might have about 14, 15 genes or so. But the um, options for testing are, are very, um, there's, there's lots of different options. So we can test just the prostate cancer panel of 14 or 15 genes. We could test, for example, a, a hereditary cancers panel based on the family history that we uncovered that could be about 40 genes, or even a multi-site large cancer panel of 80 to 100 genes could be tested. The issue becomes letting patients know up front that the more genes that you test, the more incidental findings we could have. So we could find mutations in genes not linked with the cancer at all of our patient or in their family. We could find mutations in genes where we don't know what to do with that information, yet there may not be guidelines for management. And we could also find a, a very high rate of uncertain findings, the variance of uncertain significance. And there's no management to do based on those at this time, but they can be reclassified over time with more data. So it's really a shared decision between doctor and patient to say, let's make sure we cover the core genes. Beyond that, some patients are very good with uncertainty and they may just academically want to know more. They just want more information. Other patients are not so comfortable with uncertainty and they would say, just test me for what you can do something with. So that becomes a very important discussion, you know, to have with patients. There's a lot of other information to discuss with patients ahead of time, like genetic discrimination laws, you know, what's included, what's not covered by the federal law. Um, and then what does this mean from a hereditary aspect? And I've just only summarized it, you know, for the sake of time here today. But um, these are some of the important points to discuss. And then the testing aspect of it is, you know, either with the blood or saliva sample. Most of the time, insurance will cover the cost of genetic testing, um, particularly for like the private insurances and things like that. Even if it doesn't, the typical out-of-pocket cost is about $250. So that's come down significantly from the few thousand dollars that it used to be. It can still be a financial hardship for patients, of course, but discussing that up, uh, up front is also important. So Todd, practical question for you. So we happen to be at a place here at, at Penn State Hershey where we have a fabulous team of, of cancer genetic counselors. So the level of insight I need to have into this is simply to know the trigger of whom I need to refer, right? The, sort of those buzz yeah, persons. Which is really important. Prostate cancer. And, and thankfully, 
to a lot of the things that Veda mentioned, um, I'll be honest, I don't know all of those details and I, I don't even know the significance sometimes of some of the mutations that they find. So I rely on them heavily to help with elements like costing, insurance, the implications of a positive test, a negative test. Um, and, and I find myself lucky that I have persons here who do that. What, what do you, what's sort of the broad, I mean, do you think most places have that construct? Um, and, and I guess my corollary to that is what can be done to make the, the ease for the, the, the first, you know, the front point person easier. So it's not overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, and I'll tell you, I mean, Dr. Geary's written a great article in JCO on this topic. So a couple different models for germline counseling. One is your model at Penn State, where you say, okay, my job as a urologist is to identify the patient and, and have the initial conversation that, you know, you, um, you meet the guidelines where we would recommend germline testing. I'm going to place the referral. And if you look around the whole United States, there are very few places like yours where access to a genetic counselor is like, I, you know, put a little epic referral in and the patient gets scheduled in the next right. one to three months. Um, it, most places, it just, it, you know, We've done that here. We've got an amazing cancer genetics team here. But when we, when we were using that model six, seven years ago, it was months for the patients to get in. And often by that point, the patients were like, I don't even remember what this was for. And, and so they wouldn't make that visit. And, and um, so so we adopted a clinician-driven model. And so it, so it says my job is not only to identify the patient, but it's to have the initial conversation and to go through just what Dr. Geary described in terms of, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it does take time few minutes and we say, okay, here, you know, here, here's why we recommend germline testing Here's why you meet the guidelines. Here's what we're going to do with the information. If we get it, here's the importance of cascade testing. If we do find, you know, a pathogenic or likely pathogenic mutation, um, here's, you know, the, here's give everybody the GINA description, the genetic information, non-discrimination act, and kind of cover what that means. Um, talk about the potential results. It could be just like Dr. Geary said, negative, positive, gray area, VUS, I tell patients, you know, 80% of the time, it's going to be reassuring. It's going to be negative, stone cold negative, you know, roughly. And that's great. And, and, and so that's often reason enough. Um, so you'll have that information. You know, patients, I think, often assume that there's, there's going to be a positive finding. And most of the time, there isn't. So, so, that's, so we do that. We walk through that, that piece. And if the patient at that point says, yeah, I'd like to undergo through mind testing, and we order it. And it, it, you know, blood or saliva, we place the order. We order that prostate cancer panel typically that's that, you know, 15 roughly genes. We don't go for, you know, I, I'm not, you know, poised to counsel patients about an 80 gene test. And most of the time it's not necessarily appropriate. And that's, you know, in the hands of an expert cancer geneticist who's got good reason to recommend that test. Um, and so we'll order that test. At that point, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be responsible for getting the test results. So that's really critical. Like anytime we order a test, we know we're responsible for the test result mm -hmm. for any test. It's really important with a genetic test. If we, if a patient has a BRCA2 mutation and we miss that, boy, we, uh, you know, we've messed up big time, mm -hmm. caused harm. And, um, and so we have to be able to take responsibility for the test result and then communicate that to the patient. And so then at that point for a patient who does have a pathogenic or likely pathogenic mutation, then we place the referral. So it, decreases the number of referrals, but, you know, by a lot. Um, but we take, you know, we take responsibility over that. Um, the, you know, I think the danger, I think is this is really important for a urology audience here to just, you know, say we can do this. Um, we have the tools and we can develop the skills, but it's, this is not a test that we just like check a box in order. 
is not getting a PSA, and even that requires a discussion, right? But it's it's not um, not getting hematocrit. It's not getting even you know a genomic test like oncotypeprotocipher. This has implications for the patient and their family that extend well beyond the room that, that we're in talking about prostate cancer. And so we do have to educate and counsel. Doesn't take a lot of time, but we, we really have to do that step. Or, other, or otherwise, we should be using the model of just refer straight up to genetic counselors. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe in the last sort of eight to 10 minutes here, um, I think it's important maybe that we talk a little bit on the impact that this genetic testing has. And we've sort of talked about this, and Veda, you, you, you highlighted this a few, but the impact of genetic testing on management, right? So obviously genetic testing can help inform on familial risk, right, as you sort of alluded to, but, but there are certainly some management sequelae of being able to identify some of these uh, germline mutations. So maybe talk to us a little bit about some of these, for both of you, frankly, about some of the, the implications of testing and how we can use that for therapeutics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this um, space of precision medicine has really emerged as a major driver for considering genetic testing in patients. And that's been across the board for many different patient populations and including in prostate cancer. Um, so like 2020 was a landmark year in terms of um, FDA approvals for um, agents called PARP inhibitors. So these are agents that are specifically um, uh, clinically active in uh, patients that have uh, defects in homologous recombination repair. So for example, who have pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants in BRCA2, BRCA1, et cetera, and other DNA repair genes. So there were two agents that were approved by the FDA based on two uh, major clinical studies, uh, one of which is the profound study, which was testing one of these PARP inhibitors, Olaparib, um, versus physician's choice for abiraterone or enzalutamide. And this was tested in um, two different cohorts of patients, BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM, uh, men who carried mutations in those genes, versus a second cohort, cohort B, that included um, men who carried mutations in, in, a, in a host of other DNA repair genes. And based on the clinical activity, um, the FDA granted approval for Olaparib for men who carry pathogenic or likely pathogenic mutations in, in homologous recombination repair genes. This is for men that have metastatic castration-resistant disease and who progressed on prior treatment with abiraterone or enzalutamide. Um, and then the, the Triton 2 study, it was another study that led to um, accelerated approval for another PARP inhibitor, Rucaparib, uh, for men that had BRCA-mutated uh, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. These individuals had prior treatment with um, androgen receptor-directed therapy and prior taxane-based chemotherapy. So based on the improved clinical responses here, again, there was the FDA accelerated approval by the FDA for Rucaparib. So really, it, it comes down to that th there's still some open questions as to, you know, the um, information that we can get for predicting responses for these agents. So definitely it looks like it's consistent that for BRCA1, BRCA2, that there's clinical activity here for PARP inhibitors like Olaparib or Rucaparib. For these other um, genes that are involved in DNA repair, you know, their mechanisms are different. And so the extent of response, the duration of response um, is, is really quite variable. And so I think that we have more to learn about, you know, the actual full clinical um, impact and response for those individuals who may carry mutations in other DNA repair genes. But it did open the door for more options in me for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, 
So I'll stop there for those two studies, but then there's been more recent studies that were reported um, as first-line therapy for men who um, have metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer just um, within this last year uh, for use of other PARP inhibitors like Olaparib in combination with abiraterone or uh, Niraparib in combination with abiraterone versus just abiraterone and placebo. And these two studies looked at those combinations um, in, in a bit of a different way. So for the, these are the magnitude and propel studies. So um, in the propel trial, um, they were looking at um, olaparib and you know, abiraterone in um, these individuals that were kind of all comers and then looked retrospectively with ctDNA testing to see if what was their uh, biomarker status, meaning their, their status of their mutations in these DNA repair genes. And they did find um, improved clinical responses with uh, radiographic progression-free survival for olaparib and abiraterone. Um, the question was, you know, this wasn't tumor-based testing. So, you know, kind of following up with that in terms of confirming the ctDNA results was, was important. And then the magnitude study was looking at niraparib plus abiraterone versus abiraterone and placebo. And that was, they, they specifically looked at this in biomarker positive versus biomarker negative, meaning those that had DNA mutations, repair mutations or not. And they actually found the clinical benefit in those individuals that carry DNA repair mutations and specifically those with BRCA1 and 2. So I think it's opened the door to thinking about this even upfront in the metastatic setting, but also has raised more questions, you know, about the actual mutations and predicting clinical responses. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, the take home here to me is it's really complicated. And, you know, it's not just, it's not, you know, not all BRCA2 mutations are the same. Not all ATM mutations are the same. And, th and so this is where it gets really tricky to understand what is going on, what, you know, what are the patient populations? What are we really studying some of these trials. And, you know, for me, what, I, you know, I've really been waiting for um, is a new adjuvant trial, right, for patients with known germline mutations or somatic mutations um, that we're, you know, when we see these patients, like you were asking about patients that are in our clinic, say with high-risk prostate cancer, one of the questions is, well, I don't understand, right, why, like, is this going to change my care? And the answer is, is, well, not really at this point, you know, hopefully you'll never need this information for you from a prostate cancer standpoint. But, you know, it, it can inform risk of other cancers and it can be important for family members and maybe in the future, you know, given your high risk of recurrence, it could be relevant for you. But it would really change the conversation if we said, well, hey, you know, actually, if we do find something, we do have this class of agents that might be really useful in the situation. And, and, and given that you have high risk prostate cancer, we, you know, we would really think strongly about a clinical trial using one of these agents prior to mm -hmm. surgery or paired with radiation. That, and so that's, that's really important. And, and those trials are coming. Yeah. And I echo that. I think here's a space where clinical trials are so important to keep an eye on. You know, there's, there's going to be more coming out, more reported, but it's an opportunity to learn more, you know, about this. So Todd, I'm, I'm going to bring you to the other end of the spectrum, which is obviously um, we, we now increasingly er encourage the use of active surveillance. And, uh, and as you alluded to early on, we, we, we don't want to sort of, it's not like a hammer and nails where, you know, you can only use the same hammer and the same nail for the same problem, prostate cancer. So we use active surveillance more in our armamentarium. And, and obviously the new guidelines really sort of emphasize this for low risk prostate cancer. How does germline testing play into that? So somebody that has a germline mutation 
Um, how does that impact, for example, you in your management of a patient who otherwise maybe would be a, a very appropriate low-risk uh, prostate cancer patient on surveillance? Yeah, it, so what it does is it, um, I, you know, I counsel patients about a potentially higher risk of progression, especially with a BRCA2 mutation. And um, truthfully, that's the only one that I'm re that I'm really concerned for the, the patient at a you know at a different level um, when they have low risk prostate cancer on active surveillance. But I have, in general, no problem recommending active surveillance to to that patient. It's just a different conversation. The the risk of reclassification is unquestionably higher. Now, what's the best data for that? Okay, right. It's a, a study out of um, were led by Hopkins with 11 patients who had BRCA2 mutations that had a higher rate of reclassification compared to patients without the BRCA2 mutation. So that's you know that's not a lot of data. It's um, it's important data and compelling data, but it's not a lot of data. And, and so it's definitely not enough data for me to say, you know, you've got two cores of Gleason six prostate cancer and a BRCA2 mutation. I don't think active surveillance is appropriate. That's not. I don't think that's right because you know. Just because somebody has a BRCA2 mutation, for example, doesn't mean that their cancer is driven by by BRCA2. We could actually find that out with, with additional somatic testing, but sporadic cancers do still happen in this population that can be low risk and not driven by BRCA2. Um, but that said, you know, it is a population where if the patient with, you know, after going through the shared decision-making process, says, you know what, I, I understand um, I'm most comfortable with a prostatectomy, that, you know, that's the that's a different situation to me than a patient without a BRCA2 mutation. That's a patient where I'd say, yeah, okay. I, you know, I think about this maybe a little bit more like say a pro prophylactic surgery for a woman with a BRCA2 mutation. Um, and so this is maybe, you know, it's, it's the closest we come to a prophylactic prostatectomy, which I don't recommend for a patient who's unaffected with cancer, but with, you know, very low, you know, low volume, at least in six prostate cancer and a BRCA2 mutation, a well-educated patient who under, you know, understands the pros and cons that we've helped educate. Um, I, you know, I think that can be considered. That's great. Well, I really want to thank uh, you both um, for uh, really a great podcast. I really appreciate both Beta and Todd, your thoughtfulness, and, and for obviously taking the time to join me here today. So thank you to, thanks to both of you. Thank you thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, and for our audience, uh, again, thank you for joining us. For more information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. And for any of you attending the AUA meeting, um, I think um, Dr. Morgan and Dr. Geary have a course uh, that obviously uh, goes into a lot greater detail than what we can cover in a 35-minute in a podcast. So please look it up. Again, thanks so much to both of you, and, and you guys have a wonderful evening. Thanks, Tegan. Thank you.